Hi, I'm John Mooney and welcome to The Dark State. Just a few words before we begin this show. I've received lots of messages asking why certain episodes don't seem to be available for general listening. So let me explain. The Dark State is a subscriber-only podcast. We do broadcast some free episodes to promote a better understanding of the security threats facing Ireland and the world. But if you are interested in listening to lots more episodes on everything from Russian spies to the Kinnan cartel, please do subscribe on Patreon and Apple Podcasts. But regardless of whether you do subscribe or not, thank you for taking the time to listen, and I do hope you enjoy this show. What is QAnon? Is it a cult? A popular movement, a community, a way to fight back against evil, a new religion, or a domestic terrorism threat? Or is it a conspiracy theory of everything? These are just some of the questions which today's guest has asked about this new movement which has become a very real threat to democracies around the world. Mike Rothschild is the author of The Storm Is Upon Us, How QAnon Became a Movement, Cult and Conspiracy Theory of Everything. I'm John Mooney. Welcome to The Dark State. Mike Rothschild, welcome to the show. Mike, could you tell me about yourself? What is your background and how did you develop an interest in conspiracy theories? Sure. So uh, thank you for having me on the show, by the way. I've always been interested in conspiracy theories and hoaxes and scams as a storytelling vehicle. Uh, You know, when I was in college, I got really, really into the Coast to Coast AM show uh, hosted by Art Bell. It was this late night, you know, five hour talk show where it was in the middle of the night. This guy would talk about UFOs and crop circles and, you know, soul transference and all all these really fringy topics that were very, uh, you know, on the edges of society. You know, people in like polite company didn't talk about this stuff. And I never believed any of it, but I was always interested in it as a story as, you know, what about this is so compelling to some people? Why are so some people so invested in it? And I was able to writing about some of these things and I found some journalism gigs doing it and I've been writing about it on my own for a while now and always going back to that idea of why do people believe this? What is so compelling about this? Whereas most people go, well, that's crazy. I would never think that. Some people think I've been waiting for this my whole life. This is exactly what I believe. And in terms of QAnon, I started focusing on QAnon really just a few months after the first Q posts were made. I started seeing tweets about John McCain and Hillary Clinton wearing orthopedic walking boots, uh, not, not to hide their uh, sprained ankle, the, you know, the, the way the rest of us normal people do, but because they'd secretly been arrested in a purge called the storm and they were wearing ankle bracelets and nobody could know that because it would cause riots. And I thought, no, this is just amazing. I, I, I have to run with this as far as I can go. But then I started to notice that it had some very troubling similarities to these long-running scams and frauds that were built around the same thing, kind of an all-knowing oracle who had all of the answers and would dish them out in a very cryptic way, and the followers of this oracle would wait for this great event to come. Whereas some of these other scams, it was a financial instrument that would make them millions overnight. With QAnon, it was violence. It was the good feelings they would have when their hated enemies like Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, again, were brought to justice through, through extrajudicial means. And I got very disturbed by that. 
I, I started to take it really seriously after that. And, you know, not to pat myself on the back, but I guess I turned out to be right. Your book really delves into this movement. I thought I had a good understanding of what QAnon was until I began reading your book and quickly came to the conclusion that it's an extremely complex movement. Mike, can you explain the genesis of this conspiracy? When did it emerge and how did it spread? Sure. So the conspiracy theory that we came to know as QAnon began in late October of 2017 on the image board 4chan. Of course, that's one of the more notorious places on the internet, well known for its trolling and its organized harassment, while it's also become known for memes that have become extremely popular in mainstream culture. So there's a tradition on those boards of people posting as anonymous figures, and they would pretend to be uh, a White House insider anon or a uh, high-level FBI anon. Uh, There was one who was pretending to be an MI5 anon, you know, spilling the secrets of British intelligence. And everybody kind of knows that these are fake accounts. They're just telling a story. It's all a goof. And then in in late October, an an anon appeared who starts talking about the exact day that Hillary Clinton will be arrested. And this Anon is using language that is very similar to language that Donald Trump used in early October when he was posing with a group of uh, uniformed military officers, very high-ranking generals and admirals, and Trump starts talking about how this could be the calm before the storm. Of course, nobody knows what he's talking about. He probably doesn't even know what he's talking about. It's just one of the things he says. But it catches on in these 4chan Anon circles that there is a storm that's about to happen. And this person who who started posting these cryptic messages about Hillary Clinton being arrested started talking about it as if it was the storm that Trump had been talking about. Well, most of these Anon accounts just sort of come and go. They burn out very quickly. But this one stuck around. This one got more and more popular. This one started picking up a kind of an industry of content creators, of video makers, of decoders who would look at these very cryptic posts on 4chan and try to figure out what they really meant. And this very quickly found a following among people who really wanted it to happen. And I think what differentiates it from all of these, you know, White House Insider and MI5 and these other ones is that it was about Hillary Clinton. And here was somebody who the far right had spent 30 years creating conspiracy theories about who was the worst person in the universe who killed anybody who got in her way, who was just untouchable. And now she was going to get what she deserved. She was going to get justice. And I think for that, for a lot of people that became addictive. And so you had these posts start to spill out over 4chan. It jumped over to another even worse image board called 8chan where it continued to pick up a following and continued to pick up these video makers and podcasters. And pretty soon there were hundreds of thousands of people and millions of tweets going around using these hashtags, these catchphrases that Q was putting out there. So it very quickly picked up a kind of a mass movement flavor that really had never happened before. And I, I think people were really caught off guard by how popular it was, but also by just how bizarre it was. And I think people had a lot of trouble really reconciling those two things together. Never a truer word was said. Indeed, when you um, discuss these matters and when you read the type of material that has been debated or released into the into the wild by Q, 
as this uh, poster is referred to, uh, it is in- entirely bizarre. On that note, is there any idea or does anyone have any evidence about who actually started it? Or is it a group of people, do you suspect? This is a, a really hotly debated topic. And it's it's one of those things that at a certain point, you don't, there's not much to talk about anymore. That's why I really don't talk about it much in the book. Part, part of it is that it just doesn't really matter. The, the people who read the posts don't think much about who has written them. They think it's a military intelligence team and they don't think about it much past that. The general feeling in the disinformation research journalism sphere is that it was probably one of these early evangelists who started it quite possibly this guy named Paul Ferber. He's a a web designer who lives in South Africa. And the reason why the finger sort of gets pointed at him is that when Q jumped from 4chan over to 8chan, where it jumped to was a, was a board that was uh, started by this guy, Paul Ferber. There's really not any other reason why Q would jump to that particular board unless it was Ferber who was behind it, but Ferber has denied it and there's not any real evidence that he did it. The, the Q poster left no real signature, left no real way to, to trace it back to who did it. And so it's quite likely that it went through a couple of different hands and then probably ended up with this guy, Ron Watkins, who of course has become kind of a celebrity on the, on the far right. He, he reinvented himself as a, an election expert. He was retweeted by Donald Trump. He's now running for Congress in Arizona. He hasn't picked a district yet because he doesn't actually live in Arizona. But he's somebody who has, has turned QAnon into a, a fairly lucrative grift for him. And he was the administrator of 8chan and, and it later uh, went down and, and came back as the support of Kun, which is the same thing basically. So his his social media really reads like Q posts. Um, he sort of admitted without admitting it on uh, in this documentary that was on HBO. He actually just did it again today. Uh, he was talking about how you know Q taught him about the Socratic method, and he used that that method to make his own social media. I mean, it's fairly obvious that this guy was involved in it somehow. But as to who actually was typing the cryptic nonsense into the box and hitting post, we still don't really know that. And I'm not sure we're ever going to know that. So what makes this unique? You believe it contains lots of components which have led to this, this, I suppose, I don't know how to describe it, becoming a worldwide phenomenon. So a lot of people listening to this interview might be a little bit unsure about what QAnon is. So could you explain what it is, what really makes it unique, and maybe give an insight into the components that have enabled it to become highly versatile and viral? Sure. Um, the, the answer to what QAnon is almost depends on when you're asking the question, which is, you know, extremely frustrating. For its first three plus years, QAnon really was a prophetic conspiracy theory that, that held that Donald Trump would unleash a mass arrest of the deep state. 
And the reason why we knew this is because the military intelligence team who was going to carry out this mass arrest was simultaneously leaking clues to what it was going to do using this, uh, these, these cryptic questions and sort of rhetorical nonsense on these image boards. And they called themselves Q. And people would decode these posts and think that they knew what was going on in the secret and silent war between good and evil. And of course, whenever you start talking in those kinds of sort of grand, almost biblical terms, people are going to get really invested in it because people want to feel like they are on the side of good, that they're fighting for the good guys. And of course, in this case, the good guys are Trump, Michael Flynn, Steve Bannon, you know, all of the patriotic digital soldiers who were fighting with them. And, in, and the evil was were pedophiles, were satanic occultists who were running the world and, and depriving all of us of our God-given wealth and freedom and prosperity. So it becomes very messianic very quickly, and, and people get really sucked into the idea that they're going to be fighting on the side of God and the angels and Christ against Satan and then the minions of hell. It's just, it, it's very compelling that way in the same way that something like Star Wars is compelling. It's good versus evil. It's not, you know, we're, we're squabbling over borders or water rights. It's these are the worst people in the universe and we're going to stop them. That's really why it became so compelling. It was just a, a battle that had to be won. And these were the people who felt like they were going to do it. Of course, Q then kind of had to change form once Joe Biden was inaugurated, because at that point, you know, Joe Biden is presumably as, as part as much of the deep state as you can get. And it's, you know, not likely to arrest himself. So what you have then is a prophecy that has to change. The prophecy is now not Donald Trump is going to unleash the, you know, his forces of good and get rid of all the bad people, but Donald Trump is going to be restored to office that this, this election it was stolen, but he knew it was going to be stolen and he's prepared for it. And all of this is playing out exactly as it needs to happen. And then at some point the fraud will be revealed. Trump will come back to office and we'll just get right back to waiting for the bad guys to be arrested. So that's really what it is now. And the other thing that's happened, of course, is that there are no new Q posts. Q has not made a drop now in uh, 13 months. And there's really no reason why, why there will ever be another one. They, the people who believe this stuff, they think they have everything they need already. That Q has already provided all of the answers. They've got the tools for decoding what's going on to, you know, read the comms by the deep state. They don't need new posts. You know, people don't go to church and want new books of the Bible. They have all the books of the Bible that they need. They just will reinterpret them whatever way they need to. That's really where this is now. It's a much more mainstream, much more palatable movement. It's it's discarded a lot of the really bizarre stuff, you know, the the occult stuff and the satanic pedophiles. That's not as much a part of the movement anymore. But what you have is a is a very mainstream belief that the pandemic's a hoax. Trump is actually still the president. Actually, won the election. Everyone is lying to you. Only, only the truth tellers on the right will tell you what's really going on. And of course, now they're all just fighting with each other because there's so much money that's floating around in this world. So it's a very, it's a time of real upheaval in this movement that's really rewriting a lot of what we thought we knew about the people who believed this. 
And f- the financial arrangements surrounding this, that, that's quite a significant driver of this. That, that is a correct assumption by me. Like the, the, there is a business and an industry surrounding this now. Yes, that is absolutely correct. Um, so much of what drives QAnon and QAnon promotion is grift. The, these people have found that this is a very lucrative content industry. All of the videos, all of the podcasts, all of the self-published books, you know, I write about this in my book. The uh, number two book on all of Amazon in March of 2019 was this book called QAnon, An Invitation to the Great Awakening, that was like slapped together by these 12 different people. I mean, if you read this book, it, it really does feel like a bunch of old 80s anti-fluoride pamphlets all <laughs> stapled together. It you know, barely reads like a book. But people went crazy for this because it was codifying what they've already believed. It was somebody putting on paper what they'd already thought was real. So yeah, it's a huge industry. And of course you're seeing the infighting now between some of the big personalities in this world. These people like uh, Lynn Wood and Michael Flynn and Sidney Powell and Steve Bannon. There is only so much money that you can fleece out of the people who believe this stuff. And so they're all fighting each other for it. Now, that might change if Trump throws his hat back into the ring for 2024. You know, we don't really know what's going to happen with that yet. But right now, it's a movement that's very unmoored. And so everybody's kind of grabbing as much of the cash as they can. And there's only so much cash to grab. Many people, certainly on this side of the world, will find it difficult to understand how anyone could believe in anything like this. But yet millions do. Do you have any insights into why this is happening? Yeah, I do. And it's it's one of the things that I really wanted to examine in the book is what is it about this theory that seems so outlandish to the vast majority of us, but for the, for the people who find comfort in it, it's the only thing they want to believe. And I think the the reason why is, is it really harkens back to a lot of really classic conspiracy theories in that it provides a better explanation for the way things are. It assumes that everybody in power and power, politics and the media and business is all lying to us that, you know, they're all trying to, you know, rob us of our freedom. They're all trying to steal from us, our money, our health, whatever. They're trying to t- tell us a fake story, but the, the oracles who are seen as crazy people, they're the ones who really know what's going on. So if you feel like the doctors and the businessmen and the politicians are all lying to you and here's somebody like you and some of the big Q promoters who say, we're going to tell you the truth. We know they're lying to you. Here's what we're going to do about it. It becomes very compelling. And I think that really happened during the pandemic. I mean, certainly there were a lot of Q believers before the pandemic, but they, they were kind of their own community. They weren't bringing in a lot of outsiders. What you had during the pandemic was, was like what you have with any great kind of worldwide change event, whether it's nine 11, whether it's the Kennedy assassination, the moon landing, there are going to be people who look at it and think we are being lied to. We, we are not getting the whole story here. And of course with the pandemic, we really didn't have the whole story. We, we really didn't know what was going on. We all had to go inside. We thought, Oh, you know, they're telling us not to wear masks. Now they're telling us we do have to wear masks. You have to wipe down your doorknobs. And oh, now we don't have to wipe down our doorknobs. What's really going on here? Who's going to tell us the truth? For people who are looking for that, you can go online and find that in any number of communities. So if you feel like 
uh, 5G internet is probably the thing that is causing this pandemic. You're going to go online and on Facebook and join an anti-5G internet group. Well, the Facebook algorithm is designed to say, oh, you like this? Well, we think you'll like that. And that, in this case, is maybe an anti-vaccine Facebook group. So you join that because, yeah, you've got some leanings about that. You've got some questions. And that group recommends the Great Awakening. Well, that's QAnon. So you can be a progressive, a Bernie Sanders supporter. You never would vote for Trump. But suddenly you're joining up with a far-right, rabidly pro-Trump conspiracy group simply because its beliefs and its questions dovetail with some of the beliefs and questions that you already have. So for something like QAnon, it really does provide order in chaos. It provides certainty when there are questions. And it provides what you think is the truth when you believe that everybody else is lying to you. That's an excellent explanation of what's happening here. If I could move on, QAnon is now a political movement as much as a conspiracy. What has its impact been on American politics? As an observer in Europe, and I'm looking at this unfolding, and you know, you're talking about Donald Trump, he's a former uh, president of the United States, and you're talking about people like Steve Bannon. These are all household names in many parts of Europe, and yet we're discussing them in the context of a, an online baseless and groundless conspiracy. Could you tell the listeners about the impact that this is having on American politics? Sure. It's having an enormous impact on American politics. You've had the mainstreaming of ideas that even just a few years ago would have been completely nonsensical for politicians to be talking about. You know, as as much as we've had political differences in this country, we always had sort of a baseline agreement of, okay, who is the president right now? You don't even really have that anymore. You have a lot of high-ranking, you know, highly placed members of the Republican Party who, when they're asked who is the president, they won't just say it's Joe Biden. They will give all kinds of answers about, well, you know, we, there, we have questions and there's you know, things we need to work out and we need to keep our electoral process safe and all this other nonsense. But they won't just say what the actual truth is. And I think what's happened is that these, these, these ideas have soaked their way into the mainstream GOP because nobody was really shooting them down. You had a lot of people who would pay lip service to them, who, would, who when confronted with things like QAnon, would say, well, you know, I, I, don't, I don't have the evidence for that, but, you know, what's, what's wrong with asking questions? Why don't we want people to know the truth? And, you know, what, what do some of these people have to hide? And well, the Clintons have done terrible things. And so they would they would endorse it by not um, by not going against it, and it, it gave the, these people kind of an in to get into politics because nobody was really pushing back at them on their own party. Nobody was saying, "Hey, we can't have this. This this is too much. This is too far." And so now you have people who believe in QAnon and QAnon uh, contingent conspiracy theories who are showing up at school board meetings who are running for city council, who are running for um, local mayor offices, who are running for positions of power in local Republican parties. And they're not always winning, but some of them are winning. And these are elections that are often not particularly well covered. They don't get a lot of votes. You know, it doesn't take a lot of votes to win an off-year school board election. So if you show up to a meeting and you go viral by screaming about how um, masks are tyranny and children are being trafficked 
and all these other things, you're going to stand out and you're going to have a much better chance of winning. And unfortunately, a lot of people on the left, certainly in the U.S., are just not quite prepared to take these ideas on because they're so outlandish. And you think to yourself, well, who could possibly think that's real? And unfortunately, a lot of people think it's real. And that is assisting this. And indeed, you've described this as a secret war. I've read some of your journalism work on this. And you, you I'm correct, I believe in saying, believe this is highly dangerous because you have adherence of this uh, philosophy now creeping into local government and school boards or whatever it is and uh, using their influence, but they're not openly saying who they are or their, the type of beliefs that they hold. Right, right. And what, what you have is, is people tapping into this general kind of dread that the, that the pandemic has really unleashed in a lot of people. This, this, this unease about vaccines, about masking, about school closures and mandates. And I, I, a lot of people really are uneasy about it. And a lot of people really don't know what the answer is. I'm not sure anybody really knows what the answers are. The answers are changing a lot. So this taps into that and it, and it funnels it through this idea that there's this greater war going on, that things like mask mandates or vaccine mandates are not just um, the scientific process playing out and changing, but it's part of a bigger grab for control, that it's the, the leftists and the deep state and they're exerting their final will over us. Now, if you're familiar with conspiracy literature, that stuff's been in, in the conspiracy world for decades. I mean, if you go back to people like uh, William Cooper, you know, the author of the seminal conspiracy theory book, Behold a Pale Horse. If you go back to some of the early broadcasts of Alex Jones, if you go back to some of the rhetoric around the Oklahoma City bombing, that idea of the, the sort of great global string pullers, you know, ex- take, you know, exerting their final control over us and you know, herding us into camps and killing us by the millions, that's old hat for you. But if you're not in that world, it suddenly starts to become really alluring. And you go and you start to think, well, why are they doing this? What do they really want from us? And when you're asking those questions, and then there's suddenly a huge library of conspiracy literature, of Q posts, of podcasts, of videos that are asking those same questions, you feel like somebody else is in the fight with you. And unfortunately, kind of well-meaning people who are outside that world find it very difficult to engage with those kinds of questions and with that kind of fear. It's incredible. Mike, how dangerous is QAnon in your opinion? You've documented very serious incidents where followers of of this conspiracy have taken up arms and engaged in quite significant violence. Could it could you could I ask you to tell the story of Matthew Wright? He was a QAnon follower who engaged in quite a serious uh, armed incident, um, which involved uh, police units trying to stop him. C- can you maybe tell yeah. the listeners about how dangerous this is and how it's becoming a real life security problem? Sure. So Matthew Wright uh, is a U.S. Marine veteran who was also a QAnon believer. And in the summer of 2018, he became convinced, thanks to a series of Q drops, that the the inspector general for the intelligence community had a secret report that would uncover all of the chicanery of the deep state, all of the intelligence community's attempts to sabotage Donald Trump, 
and that while there was an inspector general report coming out, that was going to be redacted and it was going to be fake and that wouldn't say anything of value, but there was a re there was a real report and only Donald Trump could release that. And the reason why we knew that is because you talked about it in the drop. Well, Matthew writes, believed that this report was real. Now, there is no unredacted report. It does not exist. But he believed that it did. And because he believed it did, he felt like it was his duty to influence Donald Trump to release that report. So he grabbed a couple of guns. He grabbed 900 rounds of ammunition, flashbang grenades. He got into his homemade armored truck, which I believe he was living in at the time. And he drove to a bridge outside Hoover Dam, announced his intentions, you know, announced that he was armed and started live streaming his plea for Donald Trump to release this report. And of course, people are terrified. People are running away, screaming. The police get involved. They start to chase him. The, the chase goes off road. His tires get shot out. They finally apprehend him. Nobody gets hurt. And so it, it doesn't make that big of a, of a news story. It just feels like, oh, it's a crazy guy with guns. I mean, it's America, you know, mm. just another day. Why? But the thing that people weren't picking up on is that this was directly caused by his belief in QAnon. And that became easy enough to wave away. And then there were other crimes that started to happen. There was a, a guy who killed his brother with a sword because he thought he was a lizard alien. Well, this guy was a Q believer. He was also a member of the Proud Boys, the uh, you know, racist, uh, you know, misogynistic clubs usually supports Trump. There were, there were lawyers who were ginning up their clients to kidnap their children in custody battles because they believed that Child Protective Services was going to sell these kids into slavery and trafficking. And, and one of these clients actually allegedly shot and killed her Q-believing lawyer because he failed to get her kids back. So you started to see these crimes pop up and some of the people who perpetrated these things were absolutely not capable of knowing what their actions were. They were actually found to be incompetent to stand trial, but not all of them were. And Matthew Wright went to prison. Uh, I believe he might still be in prison. He, he was, he committed domestic terrorism and this started to happen more and more and more to the point where the FBI, uh, I think in 2019 finally figured out that something needed to be done about this. And one of their local offices issued a report that said that this was a domestic terror group. But, uh, but again, nothing really happened partially because the social media companies weren't really taking it seriously. That took another year well into the pandemic before you finally started to see places like Twitter and Facebook start to exert any kind of control over what was going on here. So for several years, this extremely violent, extremely paranoid movement really was allowed to kind of run amok without anybody really checking on it, except a few journalists. And that's what's really interesting about this, because security issues and security threats usually emerge and manifest themselves in plain sight, and no one joins the dots with them, they, they, because they're all treated as separate, unrelated incidents. But, but they're not, uh, because this is happening online and people are becoming self-radicalised in a kind of way that we fully don't understand. Is, is, that, is that a correct analysis? Yeah, I think that's definitely a correct analysis. You know, I think with a lot of these kinds of movements, there is still a very old school uh, dismissal of it, thinking, well, it's just an internet thing. It doesn't really matter. 
And I would hope that by now we realize that so many of these movements start online. And like you said, they're doing it in plain sight. They're not attempting to hide it. They don't need to. People don't really understand it enough to combat it in any kind of meaningful way. But there, there is a there is a real sense to dismiss these things. Oh, it's just a bunch of kooks. Oh, they're just anonymous cowards. They won't put their names behind it. They won't do anything. They you know they they won't get up off their couch. And a lot of them probably won't. But it doesn't take that many to commit crimes, and then suddenly you have a, a, a terror group, and and it happens with nobody really paying attention to it. Is this cult a symptom of a much wider societal problem, or is it something else? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it is a, a symptom of a much bigger problem in our society. I think it's a couple of problems. I think part of it, especially the growth of of Q during the pandemic, I think was, was boredom. I think a lot of people just didn't have enough to do and were cut off from their friends and their colleagues and their social circles. And they just went looking online for something to, to get them going for something exciting. And Q provides excitement. It provides, um, a, a kind of like a war for you to be a part of. There's good guys, there's bad guys, and there's things for you to do that you can make memes, you can make videos, you can send things to your friends to try to wake them up. It's very participatory. It's not like a lot of past conspiracy theories where, you know, you've got the, the globalist string pullers and they control every aspect of our life, but there's nothing you can do about it. All you can do is sort of read the book or read the pamphlet and you'll know what's going to happen. You'll know why they're kicking down your door and taking you away, but there's not a whole lot you can do about it. And Q is very different in that it, it gave you the excitement of being part of something bigger. So I think that that boredom is, is really one part of it. And I think another part of it is, is the is a lack of digital literacy. The the studies from early on in QAnon showed that baby boomers were much more likely to share fake stories on Facebook than people of younger generations. And some of these people were exactly who big Q promoters were targeting. You know, very early on in QAnon, really just a couple months into it, you had a couple of the big early evangelists who went on InfoWars and they made a call for retired military people to join them in their effort to decode these posts and to figure out what was really going on here. Well, if you're, you know, a retired you know, army person and you're at home and you, you know, maybe you're an empty nester, maybe you've retired, you lost your job, your kids have moved away, you're on your own, you know, nobody really cares about your goofy conspiracy theories. And suddenly you hear these people going, there's a secret war going on and here's a way that you can play a part in it. And it's good versus evil. And you can be on the side of good. That becomes very compelling. And it, it becomes something that sort of overrides your logic and your reason because you believe that it's real. You believe that these things are going on. You don't quite have the tools to parse out fake from real online because you still believe that people generally tell the truth when they post things. And so you get sucked into it. So I think it's, it's digital literacy. It's boredom. Certainly it is old school racism. It's old school anti-Semitism. also. I mean, these are the things that have powered conspiracy theories for generations going back to the, you know, the blood libel of the 12th century. 
that's a huge part of it also. It's a distrust of authority. It's a distrust of experts, particularly a distrust of the Clintons, of Barack Obama, and these same figures that have been powering conspiracy theories for a long time. So it's a lot of old stuff, and it's a lot of newer stuff, and it all comes together in this package that for a certain type of person is almost impossible to resist. Do you think this is likely to fade, or would or will it continue to develop, morph, and mutate into a much bigger organization or conspiracy or movement? I think it is going to to mutate, and I think we're seeing that happen right now. I think we're seeing a mainstreaming of a lot of these ideas. You know, some of the really weird stuff in QAnon is not quite being grabbed onto by the mainstream. You know, some of the the numerology stuff and the you know occult stuff and things like that. I think most people still don't really want anything to do with that, but it is definitely finding a home with people who are just tired of experts telling them what to do and are just tired of liberal politicians, you know, spending their tax money on things they don't like. It's, it's definitely finding a, a new cohort of people there and it's doing it by becoming more mainstream, by leaving aside some of the catchphrases and the iconography and some of the, the really kind of culty, inscrutable stuff, that stuff is not quite so important anymore. What is much more important and much more prevalent is they're all lying to you. We know the truth. Come and join us. We're going to take back our country. And that's, that's a philosophy that is going to find pay dirt every single time somebody gets behind it. How should security agencies in places like Ireland or indeed other parts of Europe or indeed the States, how should they react to this? What, what action can be taken to confront this? If I mean, when I'm listening to you speak, and I uh, absolutely respect your authority on this subject, does part of me find it difficult to understand how anyone can buy into this type of thing? Um, and your book repeatedly states that at every juncture in all of this, what the prediction that this Q character had made, none of it would come true, but the movement rolled on in any way. And when, say, an incident or uh, something that a prediction didn't come true, that they would say, well, th- that, that's a hoax as well. So how do, how does a security agency or a government indeed grapple with an organization that you you obviously can't argue with it's it's almost terrorist like in its philosophy but yet it's not it it, it you know what 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 is the appropriate response to something like this Yeah it, it's really difficult to respond to something like this because so often you don't know what they're going to do until they've already done it you know, with a lot of the, the QAnon-driven crimes, especially early on, they weren't leaving clues on social media. They, you know, they, they weren't these major personalities who were doing this. You know, I'm not aware of, of anything that Matthew Wright put online that gave a clue that he was going to do this. But at the same time, they are starting to become more brazen and, and, and take fewer precautions. And we really saw this in the lead-up to the January 6th insurrection in the U S you know, these, these people were plotting this out in the open. They were making absolutely no effort to hide it. They didn't need to. So I think what, what I would recommend, and you know, I'm, I'm not a security professional. It's not my background. I don't have the training in that, but I have seen enough of this that I know that a lot of this is just not taken seriously. 
it's looked at as just some internet cranks and they're not going to do anything. And that's not a real thing. We've got to, you know, we've got to focus our resources elsewhere. And I think what needs to be done is to really take it seriously and to monitor the communications tools that they use. And, and they don't, they don't hide it. They're not, they're not using like end to end encryption. They're not, not using codes and stuff like that. You can go on telegram and, and create a burner account and find QAnon promoters and stolen election promoters and anti-vax promoters with hundreds of thousands of followers. And they're openly talking about violence. They're openly talking about killing their enemies and about what they're going to do and about how all the, the blood that needs to be spilled. So I would say monitor it, you know, watch these people, especially watch the major promoters, watch the reactions that they get. Look at what they're talking about. Look at what they're focusing on. They're not going to hide it. They, they don't know how to hide it. They're not good at it. You know, if you look at January 6th, these people were live streaming their crimes. They, they weren't, I mean, never mind wearing COVID masks. They weren't making any effort to hide their identities because they thought they were going to get away with it. So these people are very arrogant. They're not particularly good at committing crimes, but they do it. So I would say just monitor the communication channels, take it seriously, get to know who the big names are in this world and just watch them and, and watch for the cues that they put out because they will tell you what is going on and watch for the, watch for the comments, watch the reactions. You can see the ground swells of support going on for violent acts for crimes. And it's, you know, you don't have to work that hard to, to find it. You just have to monitor a lot of really crazy people. Mike, before I let you go, uh, a number of people asked me to ask you the following question. Is there any point in trying to discuss or debate or talk to people that believe in this to, to try, um, I suppose, convince them of reality? Is, 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 do you have any thoughts on that? You know, it, it's hard because you don't want to give up on people in your life. And you also don't want to feel like you are kind of enabling this to happen. But unfortunately there, there is very little that you can do. These people believe in this. It, it, it has become their identity, you know, especially right now with the anti-vax movement, it's really become their personality. And it, and it is, it is as important to them as, a marriage as a career, you know, as any kind of long held ambition. And you can't talk somebody out of that with just a few conversations. And you certainly can't um, debate your way out of it. You can't insult your way out of it. So that's, that's what makes this very difficult is that just screaming at somebody you're insane for believing this, what's wrong with you is, is only going to drive them deeper into the belief so the, the thing that I recommend is that if you do have somebody in your life who is, who is part of this movement, who believes these things, the first thing you have to do is decide whether it's worth it to even try to get them out of it. It may not be. It, it may just be too frustrating. You may not feel safe doing it. Uh, you, you may just not want to get into fights with somebody online about this stuff. So you, you have to decide if it's, if it's worth it to even try, if you feel like the effort will be appreciated at all. And if it's not, if you don't feel safe doing it, you have every right to walk away from that person and say, I don't want to be part of this. You know, you, you can go do that. I'm done. I don't want it. But if you do feel like you want to try to get that person out and they do exhibit some kind of sign of 
feeling like it's not working for them anymore. You know, if there is some kind of wake up call in their life and they, and the, and they start to waver, they'll probably do it publicly because these people do everything on social media. So you, there is an opportunity there. So what you want to do is just stay in that person's life. Just check in on them in a completely apolitical, non-debunking kind of way. Just say, hey, how are you doing? What's new? Let's talk about something that has nothing to do with the conspiracy. Try to engage with them on a, on a human, on a personal level, because chances are probably most of the people in their life are just writing them off and don't want to hear it and are too busy and are not interested and think all that stuff is crazy. So if you can stay in that person's life as a safe and non-judgmental, uh, almost like a sounding board for them to be able to talk about this stuff and maybe reason out some of the problems that they're having, some of the logic gaps that are appearing, then you can be a person who can start to pull them out of it. You know, what you definitely want to do is try to unplug that person, get them offline, get them off social media. You know, some of the pandemic restrictions are starting to ease so we can take people out. You can go on a trip, you can go for a hike, whatever, even just a, a day or a few hours of just breaking that cycle of constant doom and conspiracy theories and hate and outrage can really have a positive effect on somebody, but they have to want to do it. And that's the problem that I run into a lot is they just don't want to, they, they get too much out of this world. It's, it provides too much, provides comfort and community and clarity. And if, unless you can replace that with something else, I don't know that you can really get somebody out of a movement like this, but it, it's, it's very difficult. It's very frustrating and it's very hard to do. And I haven't seen it done very often. You've been listening to Mike Rothschild, the author of The Storm is Upon Us. I rarely recommend books, but I am going to recommend this work, which is an in-depth exploration of this new and evolving security threat. Mike's book is also a solid piece of journalism, and I really can't recommend it enough. Mike, thank you so much for joining us on The Dark State, and thank you for your expert analysis on this very misunderstood issue. Well, thank you for reaching out to me. Thank you, Mike. And that concludes today's edition of The Dark State. If you enjoyed this episode, we would appreciate it if you could tell a friend or post a review. I hope you will join us again next week.